Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, well, this is uh, lesson four in the uh, book of Job, and today is January 28th. And I'm uh, Dan Truitt, and we're glad to have you with us and glad to have you that may be listening later uh, on the recording. So let's pray and we'll jump right into it. Our Father, now we thank you for, again, for bringing us here today in your kind providence. You've awakened us with health and, and vitality, and we, we thank you for that. And we thank you that we have a, a desire to be here and to be together and to... Uh, sit under uh, the ministry of your word to fellowship together to encourage one another with the gospel and um, with your love for us and now we pray for the ministry of your spirit to to minister to us that you would enlighten our hearts and our understanding that we would grow in our knowledge of you and most of all in the in our knowledge of the glorious gospel of your son our lord jesus christ so make him beautiful to us today, O oh Lord. And we and I do pray for each person in the room and those that would listen later. I pray you would minister to them your grace today and encourage and strengthen them uh, in their journey. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. So last week we were... We kind of rushed to, I did, rushed to the finish line. We were working through Job's uh, discussion with his wife. And I just want to kind of go back and get a running start with, with that. That's why I gave you those notes um, to start our, our uh, discussion today. But we are, we are going to uh, talk about Job's three friends, so-called. Uh, he called them lousy comforters I think or something like that um, but there's so much in those what four verses 11 through 13 just we, we want to pause there and stay there for a little bit to to understand that and then maybe kind of do a little recap on the on the uh, prologue what have we learned there that's important to us and as we get into these uh, these speeches for the for the most of the rest of the book and then uh, we do want to put on our gospel lenses and look at look at what we've been seeing, what we've been learning, looking back from the New Testament and, and using the <clears throat> the gospel as our lens to understand what was happening then and then what is uh, you know what is true about our situation today. So let's uh, let's see how much we want to do. We talked about Job's wife. Uh, she just appears and doesn't seem to appear again. <coughs> The only other time is, I think, that we see her name is where Job said uh, his, his breath was so bad she didn't like to be around him. So that may be true for all of us, whether we're sick or not, but you can imagine the, the kind of situation he was going through. I, we mentioned that uh, dear Mrs. Job gets a really hard time, but all of the commentators that I read kind of backed off and said let's get the big picture there's a lot going on here um, she has gone through the same losses that he has the loss of all of her children in one day 
the uh, loss of the family business in one day. And now her husband, we don't know how long uh, he, he has been in this condition when she approached him, but um, she's concerned about him. I think we, uh, one, one fellow I read just last night said that we know that Job had a wonderful family and his children got along well and they, they had a good family unity. And that probably wouldn't have happened without a good mother and wife in the, in the family. So let's give her, uh, doesn't mean that she had everything right, but let's give her a little bit of a, little bit of a, a break there as, um, as she gives her counsel to, uh, to her husband. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? I never had looked up that word integrity. Uh, it is really a good word. Remember, the Lord said to Satan, that even after all of your taking everything away, uh, he still holds fast to his integrity. So both the Lord and, and his wife uh, say that he holds fast to his integrity. The word integrity means uh, uh, completeness, or it means uncomplicated. I think it means what you see on the inside, what you see on the outside is what's going on on the inside. He's authentic, maybe, or, or uh, are consistent, and so what is what's Mrs. Job saying? She it seems like she's saying, uh, Job, it's okay to lose your integrity. It's okay to to um, what is it okay? What's she saying? She's saying it's okay to be. It's okay. You know what she's saying? Yeah, and I think she's saying. Sweetheart, you are going through horrendous pain and difficulty. It's okay to get, to compromise your convictions to get out of this difficult situation you're in. And we don't know, because she says, why don't you just curse God and die? I looked at the Hebrew scholars and they said those two words go together, meaning the second is dependent upon the first. If you curse God, you will die. And he thought he was concerned about that with his children, remember? He had that sacrifice. Um, meeting for them in case they had cursed God in their heart. Or maybe she's saying, uh, maybe she's encouraging suicide. I don't know, but this, we don't know. But uh, let's, let's consider that she didn't have her theology right, or her convictions right, but her, maybe her care for her husband was, uh, was good, but was proper. Well, Job's, any thought about that? Any of y'all know any more about Mrs. Job than we do. Okay. Well, his response. He said to her, uh, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And we, we talked last time how, how uh, uh, he wasn't really, a, a, he, he wasn't calling her a foolish woman. He was just saying, don't be like one of those. You're, you're better than that. Don't, don't go there, I think is what he's, he's trying to say. So then here's his, here's his question to her. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And notice he's got the first person plural pronoun. He's including her. We've received good from God and now we need to receive evil. That word evil, we saw it in the book of Ecclesiastes pretty regularly. It means not only morally evil, but it can just mean rough, difficult times, just difficult. So 
he's saying, okay, we, sweetheart, we've received good from God. We must receive the difficulties too. And that word receive is more than just accepting it. It is uh, participating. We must participate in what God is doing. We participated in the good things that he gave us, and now he had purpose for that. Now he has a purpose for this. Let's participate uh, in that. And so... <clears throat> Um, so what is Job's theology when he says that? If we if we receive, um, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? What's his the, what's the theology he's basing that on? God is sovereign over both. Okay, God is sovereign over both. Yeah. He has the right to do what he chooses to do. And uh, I think that's what he's saying. God has a right to give us good things and bad things uh, if he chooses to. Um, so his theology is really good at this point. It's going to get a little, a little uh, iffy as we go through the book. Uh, but notice... Notice what the writer says, and all of this Job did not sin with his lips. Um, and apparently, just the way that's said there, that that, that means that uh, to say that Job didn't sin with his lips is to state unequivocally that Job did not commit the slightest error. Again, we're going to find out that, and he's speaking with his lips here, we're going to find out he struggled in his heart later in now this is apparently early on in his illness, and it's bad now, but it's going to get a lot worse apparently as he goes goes through this through this time. And so I, I gave you this. Uh, I quoted one of the one of the commentators, uh, Hartley. The lips are the hardest member to control when battling the deeper issues of the heart. So remember, James three has he has this whole what, 10 verses on the, on the tongue. What are some of the things he says about the tongue, James and, and James 3? And uh, he's dedicated to life a wild fire. Okay, it's a wild fire, okay. All right. Meaning what, uh, Cheyenne? It gets out of control Okay. It sets a lot of other things on fire too, doesn't it? Right. What does he say about the importance of the tongue, even though it's small? Steer the whole ship. Yeah, he used that like a rudder. What, there was another imagery. What was the other one? Bitten a horse's mouth. Yeah, bitten a horse's mouth. That's right. So uh, we've all experienced that, haven't we? Uh, one little word or two has uh, had an out and an outsized influence on a relationship uh, with other people. Uh, James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect and complete in a, in a mature man. Okay, well, let's uh, let's look at Job's friends. I'll read these these verses, Job, Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, or all this tragedy that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. 
and they raised their horses and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Well, this passage is full of, of uh, truths and insights that, that are helpful to us even, even today. Uh, apparently, these were other wealthy men. Remember, Job was the greatest in his region with wealth and stature. And one, I think, uh, Harley said that he thinks that the relationship was so strong that it was actually formalized by a covenant like Jonathan and David. Remember Jonathan and David? They, they committed to each other. They would take care of each other and, and their families. Um, and so this was, a, this was not just a casual acquaintance. These four men were apparently very close and very good, good friends and had probably spent time together uh, before. And so th th just think about Think about what's happened now. Um, Job's wife didn't get on Facebook and mention her husband's uh, tragedy. This news had to travel hundreds of miles to get to these men. So this, this took time and they had to, it, I don't know what all it means there, they made an appointment together to come. I, I think one fellow said that means they picked a place and a time they would meet and they would travel together. To, uh, to see their friend Job. So this took weeks, probably. So think about that. Job has now been in his distress for, I don't know, maybe a month or longer. And so things have really progressed past uh, where they had, had begun immediately. But they, uh, well, these, these four men, uh, Matthew Henry says, and others have said this too, they were very likely descendants of Abraham, not through Isaac, but through Esau, um, Eliphaz from Teman, he, Teman was a grandson of Esau. Zophar could have been the same as Zepho, uh, Matthew Henry says, a descendant of Esau. And then Bildad was from Shua. Shua was Abraham's son by his uh, wife Keturah after, after Sarah died. So interestingly, maybe descendants of Abraham, but not in the, not in the covenant. But still, maybe we can see where they got understanding about the one true God. And um, that their theology was pretty good. They just didn't apply it the right way. Um, so we'll, we'll see that in the, weeks to, in the weeks to come. So they made an appointment together to come. And they came intending to show him sympathy and comfort. Um, and they did that really well for a while, we, we think, and at least it appears that way. And particularly, and they did that well until they started talking. And, and then it just flipped the other way, and they were not comfortable. They didn't provide comfort or sympathy in any way. Um, we, we'll talk about that, that more. Um, so let's look at the sympathy and... Uh, the sympathy and comfort. I don't have a lot to say about that, but just looking at the the, uh, the root meaning of these two words, sympathy, and, and just think about these two. These are uh, both, um, they're not saying anything yet, but they are verbally and physically expressing their, uh, their concern for their friend. 
So sympathy is shaking the head as a sign of shared grief. Have you ever, you've probably done that. You've been in, this, in the presence of somebody that's gone through a great tragedy and all you can do is shake your head. And it's, what does that show when you do that with somebody? Now if you're a parent and you keep, keep you know, catch your child getting cookies out of the cookie jar, shaking your head is not a good thing. But, but in the presence of someone that's gone through a difficulty, what does that show? Well, it shows understanding. Maybe it shows so much that this is such a deep trial, I don't even know what to say about it. I just shake my head. And then the next word is a comfort. And, that, and again, that's another physical sign to sigh or breathe deeply to be moved with compassion. So uh, these are really good friends, I think, is what we see here. And, and, and part of their challenge is, notice what it says there, uh, verse 12, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. You think about this man, if he's been going through this kind of disastrous uh, illness for over a month now, he's not only suffering physically, is he? He's suffering what otherwise? Well, I mean, just the distress of it, the grief of it, the hopelessness of it, uh, the depression of it. And he's just had a kind of a contentious conversation with his wife, and so he's got marital issues too. So. Um, interestingly, Christopher Ashe, he's that author that I like so much and recommended to you, says what he sees here is the beginning of a sense of alienation, that they don't know what to do with this man. It's, you know, there's no embraces, no handshakes, no high fives or anything like they would normally engage with him, with him as a friend. Um, so Christopher Ashe uh, says, the loneliness, excuse me, the loneliness and alienation that can be caused by great suffering is what we begin to see here, especially in contrast to the joy of previous visits. And listen to this, uh, to this statement. Um, he's been taken away into a different realm, a realm of suffering so deep they cannot reach him. Um, and then he makes this insightful statement, like a friend being sucked down by quicksand. And perhaps that's what they see there. They, they, it, he makes a point, maybe the reason they didn't say anything for seven days is they didn't know what to say. He called it a, a bankruptcy of words. They didn't know, what do you, you, know, what do you say? Uh, he makes the point that um, seven days of silence is a long time. Now, I don't know if it, it says seven days and seven nights. It's hard to imagine a situation where they literally sat on the ash heap with him for seven 24-hour periods. But um, they, they may have spoken to each other, but they didn't speak to him. So you can imagine. That was, at best, that was awkward. But wouldn't you think after two or three days, this maybe goes beyond awkward. It goes to the point of... of uh, of a lack of comfort, and you know, you know, they said nothing, uh, nothing to him. One one writer that I hadn't lived before. Um, 
fellow named David Atkinson, I've got his little, little book here, it's very brief. He made a very interesting point, and I think it's insightful, that, that these three men uh, had a response or a reaction to their friend similar to what uh, Isaiah 53 says that we would have with the Messiah. Now listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So you can kind of see that, that there's, a, there's something happening here between there, these three friends and this, and this person, this kind of a distance and alienation that's taking place. Have you experienced that before? Um, maybe visiting someone with a terminal illness or maybe someone that's been greatly disfigured by a, by a fire or an accident? Well, I have, and, and you have to really step over some discomfort to continue to show care and compassion because it's, you know, it's jarring. Have you ever gone to visit somebody in the hospital, maybe hadn't seen them for a while, and you literally had this same experience? You didn't recognize the person because of, the, because of what they've been through. So that, that kind of helps us, I think, to see how serious this, this situation is. His friends are there. But he's not experiencing intimate care and, and concern. Maybe the first little bit he did. I, surely he was glad to see them, but <clears throat> maybe it doesn't stay that way as they, uh, as they go forward. Um, well, let's continue reading here. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And again, you know, just more of, of their uh, deep distress and and uh, showing their their concern for him, um, uh, trying to enter into maybe the the um, the pain and distress that he was going through, sprinkled dust on their heads. That's what he had done too. So maybe another way that they're trying to identify with him and say we're as best as we can. We're in this uh, in this with you. Um, I think uh, Christopher Ash said that that dust on the head always had the indication of judgment or of, uh, of death. But he said, he said that, he is, that, that he thinks they assumed he was dying and that he would die maybe while they were there. And they didn't know what to do. In fact, they, he said something like, they were just waiting for the hearse to come pick up the body. <clears throat> so they're, he sees them distancing themselves uh, from, from him. This fellow, uh, David Atkinson, he talked about the ministry of presence, uh, speaking of the three friends. Uh, notice, notice two things I think that were positive for a while. One was their presence, they were just there, and two was their silence. They didn't try, they didn't try to have words at the beginning, maybe they didn't know what to say. The presence and uh, presence and uh, in silence. He quotes another author. Let me read a couple of sentences to you. Presence, and this is really insightful, I, I think. Presence is a service of vulnerability. Uh, to be present 
to others is to put oneself in the position of being vulnerable to what they are vulnerable to. And of being vulnerable to them. It means willing to suffer what others suffer and go with the sufferer in his or her own suffering. So I thought that was insightful. You know, they're probably uncomfortable with their difficult situation. Maybe their grief or maybe their physical illness or deformity. And we are too. Yeah, I remember I was a chaplain for businesses for 35 years and my uh, supervisor, the founder of our organization, was a full colonel from the military as a chaplain. So he had lots of experience in dealing with really difficult things like having to go to a home and tell the family that their, their husband wouldn't be coming home because he had been killed and things like that, uh, death notification. And so we had lots of tragedies happen in the companies. And I remember my friend Gil Strickland said, we've had a suicide and uh, we need to go check on them and, and we need to go to the home immediately. And, and I said, well, Gil, I don't know, uh, and I've never done that before. He said, I'll pick you up in five minutes. <laughs> so, so we went. And, uh, and then sometimes he'd call me and say, you need to go to the hospital. There's a man you know, dying there. And, and uh, I'm glad I was under authority because I didn't want to do those kind of things. Um, but something about uh, presence, just being, being present is a, is a ministry. Um, there have been times that I've been to the hospital and it wasn't just a brief visit. There was things going on. And, and so you got to be sensitive about that because you don't want to invade their space in the sense that it makes them uncomfortable. So sometimes um, maybe they're waiting for a, a test result or something that could be you know, really, um, uh, really a change of events for them. And so I, I didn't, I, I could tell maybe I didn't need to be there in the room. So I just go sit in the waiting room and just, so my presence was, was a part, but, uh, you know, just being there, being present, being, being ready to, to care um, when they could and when we can. I, I really do think that when there comes a time of, of uh, deep distress and, and loss, if you have to err on one side or the other, err on making the phone call or going to the hospital it'd be better to go and have to just turn around and that's happened to me before I went and I wasn't able to see him and just turned around and drove back home but I think it's better to err on the side of being too present than not present enough. then you can be sensitive and back away as you need to um, well let's see they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's see if I have anything else. Ben? Yeah, see. Seven days just sitting there. His friends and Joe had to be tended to a meal, eating. Yeah. And I guess it was by servants, I don't know if it Joe's wife or not. But, you know, people had to minister to them while they're grieving the children. Yeah, there, there's a lot more going on than these four verses tell us. I mean, there's a lot behind the scenes that's happening. Uh, I mean, it's a classic narrative story, epic story that, that this editor is telling us. And everything's very quiet right now. 
I mean, just think about that. No words are being spoken. Maybe to them, maybe to each other. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, look at chapter three, verse one. Who breaks the silence? Uh, Joe, maybe he says, "Guys, you know, talk to me." And he says, "I'll tell you what I'm going through." And then, then he, <coughs> chapter three is where we'll be next week. Job's uh, lament is uh, chapter three. Well. Um, any other thought about what's going on here? Or maybe your own experience in trying to bring comfort and yeah. care to someone in, in times of... Well, I, was, I have a question because I feel like I struggle with this a little bit with trying to bring comfort to people. I don't know if it's a younger generation thing, but when I have talked to other uh, people who are grieving, it almost seems like they do not want people around. And it's this self-protective, like, I don't want to be emotional in front of you or these things. And so I have tried, and I feel like I can be that that way as well. Um, and so like, where is that balance of like, I want to be there for someone, but also I feel like there's a, a wall between people of not wanting that. And so I guess, what was your advice or what would you say to that? Because I, I would want to be there for someone. Um, but yeah, it just seems like there's, people don't want that a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, it may be different with different people, perhaps. Yes. I, I still think you're right to be proactive in the beginning, and then, of course, you don't want to step over boundaries that they've set up for you. I think there may be ways that you can show care and compassion uh, without entering their space. You know, like a, thank, a written thank you note or um, <laughs> there's been times I've called people and I hoped that they wouldn't answer so I could just leave a voicemail <laughs> I, didn't, I literally didn't know what to say and so I could just stumble through it you know 30 seconds um, I, I think uh, Jess maybe if you can't if you can't have the ministry of presence you can have the ministry of availability and and uh, and let them know you, you're available and that you do respect their privacy and you know, their concern. I, I, I think the worst thing we can do is to, is to not respond and not be available, not to show our care and concern for them. You know, we're, the, this, this uh, quote I wrote, read about the ministry of vulnerability, I was thinking about that. There's another dimension to that too, and that is the body of Christ. That, you know, we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And like the fellow said, when he when he hurt his toe, he didn't say my toe has a pain. He said I have a pain in my toe, meaning that um, I could just we could grab a half a dozen different tragedies that have happened in our in our church family the last six months and and, and say that family's had a tragedy, but wait a minute, our body has had a tragedy through through them, and so there is a there is an authentic sharing of tragedy and this vulnerability together. So, and I think the other thing we can we can be we can have confidence in that if we go to minister to people through the ministry of presence and compassion, that the Lord will give us when it's time to speak. The Lord will give us the words to say and and uh, the care for the uh, Christian. When I was a teenager, my sister was killed, and the church. There were so many people at our house for like up up to the funeral. I think it was like four days. 
there was food, and there were people that just came and stayed. The youth group was there. We were not alone. And I, I, I agree with you. I think things are so different now. Um, it was just that that was the normal common thing to do was to go and be present and bring food and just stay. And um, and then people were sensitive. They did dishes and they helped clean. I mean, no one had to. to and then, of course, whenever everyone was tired, like my mom was able to go and It was just a real ministry of the body to our family. But I also remember about two weeks after how alone everybody felt. And there was no more calls. There was, and my mom was just, you know, by herself. So it's important to remember, you know, that continuing ministry. Mm-hmm. But also, I agree with Justin, it's different now. The people, I, I wonder if it has to do with social media. I don't know. Like, they, they we're so isolated. It feels that way. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I agree it's different today. And, and normally, I would just go to the hospital and not even call or anything. Now, I call. I'm not really asking permission because they probably say, oh, don't worry about it. I just say, I'll be there in a few minutes, so at least. No, no, I'm coming, and, and if they say, well, he's going for a test, he'll be gone for four hours, that helps me to do that. But, but I, I still think that, that uh, as the body of Christ, we must be available and, and be accessible. Yes, I think that kind of answers your question, even though we have to be more sensitive and you know, recognize kind of the new boundaries that are there. But folks, the body of Christ needs, we need each other, particularly in times. And notes are, are really effective too because I know people have called me and asked me to pray for somebody and I didn't necessarily know know them but I would say well is it possible for me to send them a note and tell them that we're praying for them and one man I ran into um, I didn't know him he was from one one of Kenneth's uh, nieces that had married into the family, and her and he had cancer, and I started writing notes to him, and we went down to San Antonio for a meet for a family thing, and he was there, and he said that that gave him hope because someone was that didn't even know him was praying for him. So sometimes that can be a ministry, and you don't have to intrude on their space, and so. But I've had several people like that that I've written notes to, and they're um, very appreciative because they're going through a tough time. And so I don't know, it's yeah. just an idea. It is. A handwritten note today is an awesome expression of care and concern. I mean, it, I mean, the handwritten note that you put in an envelope and put a stamp on it and mail it. That is, that is I mean, you just think about the, how rare that is. That really says something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I thought I'd share this because it's a too too beautiful going home. I call it party because um, you know my son Jerry, he he's involved in the music ministry at Trinity Baptist uh, in Richardson, and there's a lady there, a friend of ours, who is now in the hospital, and. Um, Jerry talked to some of the other people in the group and they were thinking of um, going to see her on Saturday. That's, I guess, a Wednesday or something because it's like a weekday. And then 
God told him do not wait. So he got this other friends and went to see her with his guitar. And when she saw the guitar, because she, she plays the guitar too in the music group. So she, she was just so uh, uh, happy. Mm. And uh, they started singing and singing. The next day she passed away. So it was, you know. And my sister also went to see the Lord that way. One of her uh, son, the second son, grabbed the piano and pushed it to the bed because she was in hospice at home and sat down and started singing. And the, um, it's making me emotional because I'm remembering this. Um, and the other kids, one get, got the viola, the other one got the guitar, the other one got the violin, and they were singing, and that's how she was ushered. So, um, when God tells you to do something, don't think about your human schedule, because you don't know if tomorrow is still tomorrow. That's good. Yeah, the way I've had it taught to me was do today what you'll be glad tomorrow that you did and not sorry that you didn't do so I think it's worth the risk and the vulnerability of maybe being somewhere where you may not be wanted to be and then you can back away and then to not go at all and there was a need there that could be could be met uh, Ty we had some folks who were interjecting themselves into our lives recently and we just want to say thank you all of those. <laughs> um, and, and I think too, my my approach before this would have been more stand back and wait. Um, but I've told many people if if people had waited for me to even know what would have been helpful, it would have been a, a much more challenging experience. So I do agree with you. Take the risk and give them the opportunity to say no. We, we definitely early on said, hey, I don't know right now. When I do, I'll let you know. Um, but I definitely appreciated those folks. Yeah, that's good. Doing that. And as, I, as we read this, I mean, it's easy to look at Job's friends and their failings and their potential failings, but to imagine this story without them being there, I, I think would have been an interesting thing. So if they hadn't shown up, if they hadn't waited with him for seven days, yes, there were missteps and mistakes, but if they hadn't done that, you know, he'd be sitting in a trash heap by himself. Yeah. And Job would have been five chapters rather than 40. <laughs> okay. Well, I think what we see that, that a ministry of presence and, and silence is a is a others-focused ministry. <laughs> Now, frankly, I've had times that think, well, I need to go visit them because I want to be sure they think well of me as an elder. This is what elders do, so I need to go do that. And, but, it, the, but care for people in times of distress and suffering is a others-focused ministry. Um, well, this has been so good. Um, we, uh, we won't get to the end. I, I really do want to do this, though. I mean, let just uh, jump to Roman numeral number four, and maybe we'll just do this for for a few minutes. Cause I do want to jump. I do want to get into chapter three next 
next week. By the way, I did a, I scheduled the rest of the book, and we have like 17 weeks or something like that. And so what I'm planning to do, we're going to do chapter three next week, and then these cycles of speeches begin. So the first, the first guy is Eliphaz, and he blasts Job, and then Job gives his response. So I'm planning to do one of those each each week, and that'll that'll get us. Now, when we get to what God says, we'll give him more than one week. You know, excuse me, that was odd, awkward, stupid. Um, but that's where we're going to go, and we're going to take these cycles and try to deal with them in one in one week. Well, maybe we'll just bring this up and then be on our way. Thinking about, from the perspective of the New Testament, what has changed and what has not changed regarding the role of Satan in the lives of God's people. Well, I, I've asked you two questions. Uh, you can answer yes or no. Does God still use Satan to sanctify and prove the genuineness of the faith of his people? I think the answer is there for sure. Can you think of a couple of examples that are really clear in the New Testament of God using Satan to bring trial and testing and purification? Jesus. Okay, important. That's true. I didn't think about that one, John. <laughs> okay, good. All right, who else? Yeah, the, that's really clear in the uh, Mark, the messenger of Satan to bring a thorn in the flesh. First Timothy, end of chapter one. Paul says, uh, "I have handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme." Mm, wow, that's a mysterious statement, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Jesus told Peter that Satan asked to sift him. Yeah. I mean, it's the same, isn't it? He had Satan had to get permission to sift him, and and Jesus. Uh, let him do it. Sifting. What is sifting like wheat? What does that do? It separates things. Yeah, it separates. Right, the grain from the chaff. And Jesus said, Peter, you got a lot going on here, but there's some stuff that needs to be separated out, and I'm going to use my servant, Satan, to, to do that for you. And I say servant in a, uh, in a guarded way. Um, but Satan still, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion. We're to put on the whole armor of God. That is, rehearse the gospel to ourselves every day. We're to resist him. Uh, firm in the faith, James uh, 4 says. So that's the same, I think. But something else happened. Something's happened since the council, the, the heavenly council that we read about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Satan doesn't have... He doesn't have the same access that he did at that time. And I don't want to rush into it, so we'll get to it next week. But um, because of the death and resurrection, the justification provided by Christ, he no longer can do one of the things he loved to do, and that was to be the accuser of God's people. And if you think about it, in some ways he was accusing Job to, to God. He was saying, Job's not, he's not the guy that he looks like he is. He's a hypocrite. And um, so, but we'll look at that. We'll start with that next week about uh, what's happened. And, and we're going to go to uh, Revelation 12. For, it's just really important, I think, for us to see that he no longer has that, that place of accusation. Okay, well, thank you.